If you have your copy of God's Word, you can open to 1 John chapter 1. I'll be reading the first four verses. If you have one of the Bibles from the back, it's page 1021 toward the back of the book. The Bible. 1 John chapter 1, the first four verses. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. May God add His blessing to the Word and to the preaching of it. Well, good morning. We are starting a brief Advent series, three sermons, uh, where we're going to look at the first chapter of 1 John and a little bit of the second chapter. So over three weeks, we're going to mine out the Christmas riches that are in the first chapter of 1 John and the beginning of the second chapter. I've called the series Christmas in Three Words. I'm not going to tell you what all three of those words are up front. You have to wait week by week to find out what they are. But if you read through 1 John 1, And the first part of chapter 2, you may be able to guess, so I encourage you as we go through this series to read 1 John together with us. But if you had to describe Christmas in three words, what would they be for you? Or if you had to ask another person, what might they be for them? Last-minute shopping? Milk and cookies? Family and friends? Decorating the house? Playing in the snow for parents that might be, come here now, stop fighting, please. Visit Santa and watch Elf, the movie with Will Ferrell, might be Throne of Lies. Okay, that felt like a dud. You guys need to watch Elf. That's a pastoral requirement and request. (laughs) But maybe for some of us... um, It's memories of loss, and Christmas can be a source of pain more than it can be sometimes a source of of pleasure. And I just want to say this um, up front, that Christmas, the Christmas season, the season of Advent, is is a time and is a gift for tired, weary, exhausted people. Think about the songs we sang this morning. Those are not songs of triumph. They, they end there. But where do they begin? They begin with longing. They begin with desire. They begin with desperation. Oh, come, Emmanuel. And it's that desperation and that discouragement and that pain that can sometimes be for us the greatest gift that God could give us 
at the Christmas season because it draws our hearts to our eternal Savior, our eternal home, and reminds us that this story is not finished yet. But if you ask God, who's the most important person to ask, to describe Christmas in three words, he would probably say, Christ is born. Christ is born, because that's in fact what he did say. Now, don't never want to put God, words in God's mouth. It's a very bad thing to do. Um, but these are the words he himself said. Luke chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, God sent an angel on the morning, or the, after the evening of Christ's birth. The angel said to them, late in the evening, early in the morning, the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. That's what God said through his appointed messengers. Matthew chapter 1, verses 20 and 21 reinforce this. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That's what God said Christmas is all about. And so I've chosen three other words to describe the significance of the birth of Christ, and we'll see them over the course of three sermons this Advent season. And our text is, like I said, is going to be the first chapter and the beginning of the second chapter of John's first letter. And this morning we're going to look at the first four verses, 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, and unpack our first word. Our first word for the Christmas season is Christmas is historical. Historical. We're going to look at history this morning because it's important to start there because Christmas really happened. It really happened. Many people will put Jesus sentimentally into the category of myth, of Santa Claus and Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and Frosty the Snowman. He's kind of all part of that seasonal tradition. But the Bible insists that Jesus is not a mythical character. He really existed, and the New Testament is not myth or fantasy. It's not a story that's made up. It's actual, factual history. Tim Keller said, Christian faith refuses to be categorized as a belief system of abstract ideas that can be dismissed by saying, well, I'm glad that's true for you. It, I'm glad it works for you. It just doesn't work for me, and it just isn't true for me. Christianity claims to be grounded in history and is therefore objective reality with which we must reckon, not speculation which we may choose to believe or disbelieve. So if that's you this morning, or if you have family members who are skeptical, not about the Christmas season, we, we all tend to generally like that, but the Christ who really is, if they're skeptical about those sorts of things, then I'd encourage you to share with them, or perhaps you need to hear this morning, what J.I. Packer wrote uh, in Knowing God, his famous book. He wrote the following. He says, I ask you for the moment to stop your ears to those who tell you there is no road to knowledge about God, at least no sure word, road. We can all find our own roads, but there's not a road that God himself has installed with which we may always encounter him. So Packer tells us to stop our ears to that nonsense, and he says, and come a little way with me and see. 
That's what I want you to do with me this Christmas season. Come a little way and see if there is a true road. Packer concludes and says, After all, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. And anyone who is actually following a recognized road will not be too worried if he hears non-travelers telling each other that no such road exists. End quote. The people who will most likely tell you that Christ, at least the Christ as he is described in the Bible, is not true are those who have never encountered him. But to those who have encountered him, who have followed that road, who have traversed that trail, who have been there have, and met him, will tell you quite surely he's on that road. There is a road that leads to the true knowledge of God, and it's the historical Christ who arrived on Christmas morning. So four questions this morning as we unpack 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Simple questions, I hope, and easily graspable from our text. Here's the first one. Who is Jesus? Who's Jesus? That's a good place, I think, for us to start. And 1 John chapter 1, 1 through 4 gives us the answer. But before we get to John's answer, let's ask, how does the culture answer that question? How does the world answer that question? The reason why I start there is because we need to make sure that our Jesus is the real Jesus. And for some reason, during the Christmas season, there are lots of counterfeit Jesuses that show up. They just pop out of the woodwork. Kevin DeYoung, pastor, identifies several counterfeit Christs in the world today. I'll give you a few of them. He says there's Republican Jesus. Republican Jesus is against tax increases and activist judges, and he's for family values and owning firearms. That's Republican Jesus. Okay? Then there's, then there's Democrat Jesus, okay, who is against Wall Street and Walmart and for reducing our carbon footprint and spending other people's money. But then there's also Therapist Jesus, Therapist Jesus, who helps us cope with life's problems and heals our past and tells us how valuable we are and not to be so hard on ourselves. Then there's Starbucks Jesus. Starbucks Jesus drinks fair trade coffee, loves spiritual conversations, drives a hybrid, and goes to film festivals. (laughs) Then there's open-minded Jesus. Open-minded Jesus loves everyone all the time, no matter what, except for people who are not as open-minded as you. And then there's Touchdown Jesus, who helps athletes run super fast and jump higher than non-Christians and determines the outcome of Super Bowls. That's Touchdown Jesus. And then there's, there's Martyr Jesus, a good man who died a cruel death, so we can feel sorry for him. Then there's Gentle Jesus, who was meek and mild with high cheekbones and flowing hair, and walks around barefoot wearing a sash and and looks very German. And then there's hippie Jesus who teaches everyone to give peace a chance and imagine a world without religion and helps remember all you need is love. There's yuppie Jesus who encourages us to reach our full potential, reach for the stars and buy a boat. There's spirituality Jesus who hates religion, churches, pastors, priests, and doctrine. He wants us to find the God within and listen to ambiguously spiritual music. There's platitude Jesus, good for Christmas specials, greeting cards, and bad sermons. And he inspires people to believe in themselves and lifts us up so we can walk on mountaintops. 
There's revolutionary Jesus who teaches us to rebel against the status quo and stick it to the man and dream up impossible utopian schemes. Two more, three more. There's guru Jesus, a wise, inspirational teacher who believes in you and helps you find your center. There's boyfriend Jesus who wraps his arms around you as we sing about his intoxicating love in the secret place. And then there's good example Jesus who shows you how to help people change the planet and become the better you. My point is there is all kinds of Christ out there. We, as idolaters by nature, as fallen human beings, have a way of manufacturing whatever Christ we want. But the, the point is not what does culture say about Jesus, but what does God say about Jesus? God's opinion of Jesus is more important than anyone else's. I mean, surely you would agree with that. You would want to know God's opinion on the subject. And so let's see what God says through the Holy Spirit that he writes in 1 John chapter 1. I want to point out just a couple of, of parts. We're not going to necessarily go verse by verse, so I want you to pay attention to this passage because we'll be jumping around. But I want to see that this is rooted not in what does Pastor Mark think or what does Heritage Baptist Church think or what does Pastor Ted or Pastor Keith or Thad or pa other Pastor Keith think. What do, we, uh, what do we think? It's not the point. The point is what does God think? And do you see it here? Do you see it? And I want you to see it. So here's what God says. Look at chapter 1, verse 1. That which was from the beginning. Verse 2. The life, the life was made manifest. Look at the end of verse 1. Concerning the word of life. So that which was from the beginning, the life, the word of life. The eternal life, verse 2 which was with the Father. Those are some ideas. We don't get a full-orbed picture of Jesus here. We do in the letter of 1 John, in the Gospel of John. But here we just get these statements. That which was from the beginning, that which was with the Father, that which was the life, the eternal life. What's the idea that John is getting after here? One crystal clear reality. He's not telling us everything we need to know about Jesus, but he is telling us this. Jesus is the eternal Son of God. Jesus is the eternal Son of God, right? That which was from the beginning, didn't have a beginning, he was back in the beginning. Concerning the word of life, the eternal life, which was with the Father, meaning he's not the same as the Father, he's the Son of the Father. So he's with the Father in the beginning, the eternal life. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. It's, he's the eternal Son of God. This is the Jesus Christ that Christmas presents to us. Not all the various types that our culture presents to us, but the one that God himself presents to us. Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. Not just another prophet. Not just another rabbi. Not just another wonder worker, magician. He was the one that all of history had been waiting for. The son of David, Abraham's chosen seed, the one to deliver us from captivity, the goal of the Mosaic law, the God in the flesh, the one to establish God's reign and rule in the earth, the one to heal the sick, give sight to the blind, freedom to the prisoners, proclaim good news to the poor, the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. This was the eternal 
Son of God, Creator, who came to earth to begin a new creation. Embodying the covenant, fulfilling the commandments, reversing the curse that God had placed upon the earth in the beginning as a result of human sin. So it's this Jesus who is the Christ that God spoke of to the serpent in Genesis 3 and to Noah in Genesis 6 through 9 and to Abraham in Genesis 12 through 15 and who prophesied through Balaam and guaranteed to Moses before he died. And it was this Christ who was promised to David and this Christ who was promised and revealed in Isaiah as the suffering servant and this Christ who was predicted through all the prophets including and coming up to the very last one, John the Baptist. So he's the Father's Son, the Savior of the world, the substitute for our sins. This is who Jesus is. That which was from the beginning, the eternal life, who was with the Father. Question number two. What did he do? What did he do? So this eternal Son of God who was with the Father, what did he do? Notice what John says a couple of times here in verse 2. Look at verse 2, chapter, 1 John 1, 2. The life, that's the eternal life, that's Jesus, was made manifest. Then very end of the verse, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That word manifest. He showed up. He went, he came forward, he came out. See, that implies that he existed before. John already said that. He was in the beginning. He was with the Father. But then at some point, he came to earth. He came to earth and was made manifest as the Son of God in the earth. He became a human being. He took on the form of a human. He became man. Mystery of mysteries, the glory of the incarnation. We'll be hearing a little bit more about that in John Hogue's devotional tonight at the Lord's Supper as he talks about Emmanuel, God with us. So, but the idea here is that this Son of God, this eternal one who was with the Father, was made manifest. And that implies that he was, that this preexistent one came into history and lived among us as one of us. This had been a long time coming. Let me give you an Old Testament survey a little bit of the prophecies concerning Jesus that were fulfilled in his coming. 4,000 years before Christ came, Adam and Eve received a prophecy that the Messiah, Jesus, would be born of a woman. And Galatians 4.4 says that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. 2,000 years before Jesus came, Abraham received the promise that the Messiah, Jesus, would descend from Abraham through his son Isaac, and then through Isaac's son Jacob, and then through Jacob's son, Judah. And according to that, we see that fulfilled all throughout the Old Testament. Commence, uh, coming together in Matthew chapter 1, where we read the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah. He descended through that line, just as God promised. Then 700 years before Christ came, Isaiah prophesied that Jesus' mother would be a virgin who conceived by a miracle and said that Jesus would be God who became man. And then in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, the Holy Spirit, under the insp Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes that very fulfillment. 700 years, again, Micah, in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, 
prophesied that Jesus would be born in the town of Bethlehem, Micah 5.2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin is from old, from ancient of days. And we see that fulfillment in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, as Jesus is born in Bethlehem. 700 years again before Christ, Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 53 that Jesus would live his life without committing any sin. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 and 22, fulfilling that prophecy, Peter writes, For to this you have been called, because Jesus Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Again, 700 years before Christ came, Hosea prophesied that Jesus' family would flee as refugees. Hosea 11.1, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. And Luke grabs that phrase and applies it to Jesus in Matthew chapter 2. Or sorry, Matthew grabs that phrase and applies it to Jesus in Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. 400 years, just a few more. 400 years before Christ, Malachi prophesied that Jesus would enter the temple. And this was important because the temple was destroyed in AD 70 and no longer exists. Matthew, Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord whom you seek will come to his temple. Luke chapter 2, verse 25 through 27, explains the fulfillment. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this Simeon was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ, and he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law. So we see it again and again. I could quote text after text after text in the Old Testament. Remember Isaiah with prophesying of John the Baptist in Isaiah 40, that there would be a voice that would cry out in the wilderness. In Matthew chapter 3, grabbing that very phrase and applying it to, to uh, Jesus and the ministry of John the Baptist. We see the prophecy that Jesus would perform miracles in Isaiah 35, and we see him do them all throughout the Gospels. In Zechariah 500 B.C., prophesies that Jesus would ride into the Jerusalem on a donkey. We see that fulfilled in Luke 19. 1,000 years before Christ, David prophesied that Jesus would be betrayed by a friend. It's fulfilled in Matthew 26 through Judas. And just again and again and again, from prophecies regarding the 30 pieces of silver being handed over in payment in Zechariah 11 to its fulfillment in Matthew 26 and 27, from prophecies that Jesus would be beaten and would have his beard plucked out and be mocked and spit upon from Isaiah 50 being fulfilled in Matthew 26, Lots even being cast for Jesus' clothing in Psalm 22 and fulfilled in John 19. Prophecies through Isaiah that Jesus would be hated and rejected in Isaiah 53 and being fulfilled in Matthew 27. The point is, is that from his birth, through his life, to his death and his resurrection, all of this was told God's people centuries before Christ actually came. And so he is the fulfillment. He's the manifestation of history coming to its climax and its fulfillment. That's what he did. John Stott said, The Bible reveals a God who long before it even occurs to man to turn to him, while man is still lost in darkness and sunk in sin, takes the initiative 
rises from his throne, lays aside his glory, and stoops to seek until he finds him. End quote. And that's what Jesus has been doing ever since is continuing, even though he's returned to the Father's right hand post-resurrection and awaits we, as the gospel continues to go out and as people continue to be gathered through it and churches continue to be born and added to and all of God's people down through the ages await his second manifestation, his second coming. So that's what he did. He became manifest. He was born. Third question, how do we know? How do we know? I mean, really? I mean, all that's nice to think about, right? It's nice to think about. It's nice to think about the, the Old Testament prophecies and how they were fulfilled. It's nice to be reminded of those things. But, 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 but how, do we, how do we really know this? See, because I think part of the point of Advent season and part of the point of, of thinking through these sorts of things is to give us greater confidence that the hope on which we hang the thing on which we base our lives, think about this. We're hanging a lot on this man. It better be rock solid. It better be irrefutable. It better be substantive. Because here's the truth. We're all basing our lives on some hope. Everybody is. And the question is, we've got to examine those foundations sometimes peel back that carpet look underneath is the foundation solid because the foundation solid the house will stand and we see here in first john 1 1 to 4 the foundation is rock solid let me give you some of those foundation stones look again verse 1 that which was from the beginning here's here's some foundation stones which we have heard which we have seen with our eyes which we've looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Verse 2, we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you. Verse 3, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. You see this? See this? Who's, who's the we? It says, this, this person who's talking, we've, we've heard we, we've seen him. We saw him with our eyes. We didn't just hear about him. We, and just, we heard him. And we saw him. And we, we looked upon him. We were in his presence. We touched him with our hands. Couldn't get any closer to this one who was the eternal life made manifest than these men got to him. He says, we've seen him. We testify to it. We tell you. We're telling you what we're telling you is the truth. So who's the we? It's John first. John the apostle. John the disciple of Christ. Along with, I think he's speaking for the rest of the disciples, the rest of the apostles, the rest of the 12, or at least the 11, who were, who were with him. Who live and walk with Jesus for three years, it's that John. And this John's resume to speak about this Christ is better than any resume you could ask for. Why do I say John? John is uniquely gifted to say what he's saying here. Even more so than the other apostles, although they're just as 
in many ways just as gifted to say that, but who was John? Of the 12 men that Jesus chose to be his apostles and original disciples, no one was closer to Jesus than John. In John chapter 19, verse 26 and 27, we read that Jesus entrusted the care of his mother Mary to John while he was hanging on the cross. Who you give your, who you give your mother to to care for them in their old age, you have a lot of knowledge of and a lot of confidence in, don't you? You can't get more reliable than that. Jesus Christ chose John to care for Mary. And in John 19 and 20, John refers to himself as, quote, the one whom Jesus loved. That's one of his favorite designations for himself. In John 13, during the Lord's Supper, John is describing as declining at table close to Jesus. The bottom line is that John was extremely close to Christ. I mean, you've heard it said, right? There was kind of a temple structure among the apostles. You know know the structure of the temple, right? There was the outer courts, and then there was the holy place, and the most holy place. There were these various uh, kind of consecutive circles where God's people could enter that were more or less intimate. And there was kind of that going on with the apostles. You had the, all 12, of course, were close to Jesus, but, but there, were, there, were, there were those who were especially close to him. And John was one of those. John was one of those who had access, we might say, to the most holy place. He was closest to Christ. And so when he writes and he says, hey, this guy, he's the eternal life who was made manifest. I saw him. I heard him. I touched him. I was with him. That's so significant because it's this man who says these things along with the other apostles and that through him now we hear the voice of Jesus. He says, I've seen the face of Jesus. I've looked into his eyes. I touched him with my own hands. I knew Jesus Christ personally. I know him. I know his message. This is historical reality. I saw him in the flesh. I walk with him. I talk with him. So you can be confident that Jesus is the objective truth and revelation of God in his space-time incarnation. We have seen the blessed life, and I am testifying to you that the truth, that truth, and that life are found in Christ. That's what he's saying. Now, let me step back here and ask a question. Everybody, like I said a few minutes ago, everybody is basing their confidence and their future on the testimony of people. Test that. Everybody you meet, believer or unbeliever, they are basing their view of the world on what people have told them. That's universally true. Nobody learns anything in a vacuum. You say, well, I got it out of the book. A book written by who? I heard it on a radio program. Who was telling you? Well, he's got these credentials. Okay, so what? Every notion of truth, every notion of right and wrong and the things that we have, we base on what people have told us, what the culture around us is saying, and therefore that shapes and informs our opinions on things. And I'm just saying that this morning, if you, if you are here and have any doubts whatsoever 
whether or not Jesus Christ really is who he said he is and whether or not he really is someone you can base your eternal hope on, I would say, can you find anybody else who's more accredited to tell you than John? That's more accredited to tell you about anything? I mean, who are you going to most likely trust on any subject? The person who spent the most time with it? The person who has experimented the most? The person who has invested the most? They become credentialed to speak about something because they have personal experience of it. John is credentialed to the max. There's no one more credentialed to write about Jesus than John. And he tells us what, who, G, who, John, who Jesus is. John Stott, again, says, Our author writes that having heard, seen, and touched the Lord Jesus, he now testifies about him. For the Christian message is neither a philosophical speculation, nor a tentative suggestion, nor a modest contribution to religious thought, but rather it is a confident affirmation by those whose experience and commission have qualified them to make it. End quote. These are qualified, experienced men. And I'll tell you what, I trust that kind of credibility. I trust that kind of credibility. Um, I'm not the only one. There are others that trust that kind of credibility too. One of those is Bono of U2. When he was asked uh, during an interview, he made a striking statement. He said, I think a defining question for a Christian is, who is Christ? And he went on to say, quote, I don't think you're let off that easily by saying that Christ was a great thinker or a great philosopher, because actually he went around saying he was the Messiah. That's why he was crucified, after all. He was crucified because he said he was the Son of God. So either in my view, he either in my view was the Son of God or he was nuts. You see what Bono's doing? He's playing into C.S. Lewis's old Lord Liar Lunatic apologetic. He says, so he either, in my view, was the son of God or he was nuts, and I find it hard to accept that whole millions and millions of lives, half the earth for 2,000 years, have been touched, have felt their lives touched, and inspired by a nutter, end quote. (laughs) That's an Irish way of saying a crazy person. Another writer put it equally well. He said, I'm far within the mark when I say that all the armies that ever marched and all the navies that ever sailed, and all the parliaments that ever sat, and all the kings that ever reigned, put together, have not affected the life of man upon earth, as has that one solitary life. No one's life has affected history like Jesus Christ's life. So let me conclude with point number four, question number four. What difference, what difference does this make, right? We've seen who Jesus is. He's from the beginning. He's the eternal life who was with the Father. What did he do? He became manifest in the earth. How do we know? Because John was with him. John touched him. John heard from him. And he takes that knowledge and he proclaims it to us. Because we weren't there. We weren't with him. But this letter was written so that even though you weren't with him, you might be with him anyway. Because you don't have to be spatially there, historically there. You can be just as deeply impacted here and now. So why does this make a difference? 
What difference does all this make? Three quick things. Number one, chapter one, verse three. John gives us all three of these reasons in verses three and four. So go back to your text, look over, hover over that with me. Notice what he says first of all. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that, here's the purpose, here's the difference. All this makes, all this theology, all this history, this is the difference it makes. So that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Three things. First of all, that you may have fellowship with the Father and with his Son. There is the main difference that the coming of Jesus makes. Now, what does that imply? What does that imply that John had to say that? Jesus had to be the eternal life who was made manifest and come into the world, live and die and rise, so that you may have fellowship with the Father and with his Son. That implies we don't get that any other way. We don't get fellowship with the Father. We don't get fellowship with the Son. We don't get heaven unless Christ does this. So what does this tell us about our natural relationship with God? Are we all on good terms with God? Are we born into the world on good terms with God? Is everybody going to heaven as long as they're a pretty good person? No. That's a worldly, fictitious, counterfeit Jesus that got made up somewhere and passed down in good, wholesome families. And even really bad families that aren't as bad as other bad families. We just, we don't get our ideas from the Bible. We get our ideas from sentimentalism. And so Jesus came to establish our relationship with God and put it on good terms. Reinstate us into fellowship with God. We were made in fellowship with God back in the garden as human beings when Adam and Eve created, when God created Adam and Eve. But then when sin entered the world, that fellowship was broken. When their, dis, their disobedience brought about the curse and death and estrangement and from God and separation from God. So Jesus came to reestablish our relationship with God and to put it back on good terms, to bring us back into fellowship with the Father and with his Son. And that is the most important thing that Christmas announces to us. I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be for all people, because in and through this message, you can have fellowship with God. You can be brought back into relationship, right relationship with God. But that's not it. That's not the only piece. That's, that's, that's huge. That's wonderful. But that's not it. Notice also, he says, so that you may have fellowship with us. That is, you might be brought into a community of people that also hold to this Christ and this Jesus. So this is what the Son of God came to do. He came to come to earth to reconcile people to God and then to bring all those people together into churches that would worship him and have fellowship with him together. Because that's the Trinity. The Trinity is a, is a, is a unified community of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And therefore, when God's salvation plan moves into the world, you better believe it's a community salvation plan. Not just a community of God and individuals, but a community of God and churches. 
a community of God in the, his church, his worldwide community, and the ways in which that worldwide universal church expresses itself locally in little or big churches. So there are two extremes here, right, that we have to avoid when we think about what difference all this makes. One is to be identified with Christ without being identified with and by Christ's people. And that's a huge mistake a lot of people make. They think they can be identified with Christ and have no identification whatsoever with any church. You can't. People who claim Christ and don't claim a church to which they belong are counterfeits. At least they're mistaken. You don't want to go too far and just, you know, be... Some people are just poorly taught. They don't, I mean, they're Christians. They love the Lord. They want to follow the Lord. But they have no idea that, that Christ came not only to die so that they would have fellowship with God, but also they'd have fellowship with us. They'd be brought into a community of love and encouragement and sometimes correction so that they can be watched over and cared for. So that's one extreme to avoid. But if a person resists that, and you're patiently instructing them, hey, you claim to be a Christian, you haven't been to church in seven and a half years, you don't have any intention to ever go anywhere, join a church, you know, be a part of a community of people. What Jesus are you following? What Jesus are you following? Because you can't be identified with Christ and not be identified with his church. That's not me, that's John. John says that. We came, he came to have fellowship, bring fellowship with, with the Father and the Son, and with us, with human beings, with real people. So that's one extreme to be avoided, that you can be so identified with Christ without being identified with and by Christ's people. The other extreme is to be joined in some external sense to a local church without being saved, savingly united to Jesus yourself. It's to be, well, I'm, I'm at the church, I'm a part of the church, I come to the church, I'm with the church, we're together. But that doesn't mean you're with Jesus. Right? Kids, just because you're attending church... Being involved in church doesn't mean you're with Jesus yet. Okay, you have to personally respond to Jesus. Church can't do that for you. You have to place your trust in Jesus. You have to say, he's my Savior. Not just mom's Savior, not just dad's Savior. My Savior. He's my hope. He's the one that I need for my salvation. So... Those are the two extremes to be avoided. You think you can have, you know, just because you're in the church, you're okay, or just because you have Jesus by yourself out in the world, you're okay. It's both. It's vital relationship with God that leads you into vital relationship with the church. Now, let's be clear on something. Church doesn't save you, okay? But relationship with the church manifested manifests and validates your salvation it manifests that you are one of christ's people if you are one of christ's people in this room with the vast majority of you are if if you are one of christ's people you know this testimony that when you became a christian your very first if early impulses were to get around other christians that's that is born in you by being born again of the holy spirit i had no Christian background, no family that raised me in the church, became a Christian at 15 and wanted to find Christians. Wanted to go to church, find somebody to take me there. That's what happens. You're like, okay, so uh, yeah, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna go, go be with Christ's people. We're going to go find some people 
that are that belong to Jesus and we're going to we're going to cast in our life among them. And so that's that's what that's the difference that Jesus makes. We have fellowship with the Father and with his son and then we also have fellowship as together with his people. Thirdly and finally, so that joy may be made complete. Joy may be made complete. See that in verse 4? We are writing these things. John's writing these things on behalf of the apostles so that our joy may be complete. But that's difficult. It's difficult. Some translations will say your joy. It's both. Okay, it's both. It's, the idea is that in John's writing of these things, that that's his joy. Oh, by the way, let's make an application to us, okay? Here's what Christmas does. When Jesus brings us into fellowship with him and the Father, and he brings us into fellowship with each other, what's the next impulse? The next impulse is mission, telling other people. And it's our joy to do it. When are you, are, have you ever experienced even uh, evangelistic happiness? You ever experienced that joy? Whether or not the person responds or not, but you just share Jesus with somebody? Have you ever experienced that joy? That joy is addictive. There's some real joy there. When you commend your joy to other people and when you start testifying and proclaiming, John's a Christian hedonist. And you guys, some of y'all know what that means. That's John Piper's phrase, not John the Apostle. But the idea is that He's kind of after his own happiness here in writing this letter to us. Because he says, there's nothing that makes me happier than telling you about Jesus. That's what makes me happy. I'm writing this so that my joy will be complete. When you read and hear all about who this Jesus is. But it's also true that he desires nothing more, according to his second letter, than to find that his children are walking in the truth. So that they've responded to it and they are happy about it. So it's John is... A loving apostle, he is concerned with his own joy, but he's also concerned with the joy of those who hear him, and he wants their joy to be his joy, which is joy in Christ. But notice, he's proclaiming, he's telling, he's testifying so that their joy will be complete. Now, let me conclude. The experience of joy that John has here is not just limited to John. It can also be our experience, and it is our experience 1 Peter 1.8 reminds us that though you've not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. That's easy for Peter to say, but Peter's saying that about people that have never met Jesus personally, at least not physically. They've met him personally, they've met him spiritually, but they haven't been in his presence physically. So these verses picture a pure, sweet communion with God that many of us I think if we were honest, we don't regularly enjoy. I mean, who among us can say that our joy is complete? And you know why I think some of that is happening? What are some of the reasons that our fellowship with God and joy may be lacking? Is because in this season, especially, which is a call to slow down, the world is calling us to speed up. That's what it is. Get this, get this, get this, do this, do this, do this. Here, here, here. Here's your joy, here's your joy, here's your joy. Here's a fresh email. Get this and you'll have joy. Here's a sale. Get this, you'll have joy. 
Here's another discount. Get that, you'll have joy. Spend as much time with your family. That'll bring you joy, ultimate joy, lasting joy. Do this, do this, do this. Burn yourself out in busyness and franting and fretting. Do that. That's what the world's telling us. It's even what the church sometimes tells us. We have two voices, though, that are calling us this Advent season. Commercialism, contemplation. Which voice will you listen to? That will determine the level of your joy in this season. The voice you heed will determine the quality of your communion with God and with each other. Now, buy your gifts, right? Celebrate. Bless your people in your life. Think for them. Do all you can to, to do that. But don't lose sight of the point of why we're doing this. We're doing this to slow down and encounter Christ. In keeping in step with the Spirit, I'm going to conclude with this, so worship team, please come up. In keeping in step with the Spirit, J.I. Packer writes, One reason why the experiential reality of perceiving God is unfamiliar today is that the pace and preoccupation of urbanized, mechanized, collectivized, secularized, technologicalized modern life is such that any sort of inner life is very hard to maintain. To make prayer a priority, as countless Christians of former days did outside as well as inside the monastery, is stupendously difficult in a world that runs you off your feet and will not let you slow down. And if you attempt it, you will certainly seem eccentric to your peers. For nowadays, involvement in a stream of activities is decidedly in, and the older ideal of a quiet, contemplative life is just as decidedly out. That there is widespread hunger today for more intimacy, warmth, and affection in our fellowship with God is clear. But the concept of Christian life as sanctified rush and bustle still dominates, and as a result, the experiential side of Christian holiness remains very much a closed book, end quote. You can't rush. You've got to slow down. So my appeal to you is that during this month, as we embark upon this season of Advent, brothers and sisters, take time to reflect. Take time to get space. Even if it's just moments in the midst of the hustle and bustle, slow down. Fellowship with God. Fellowship with each other. And I imagine that your joy will be increased. Let's stand together, and I'll close us in prayer before we sing. Lord Jesus, thank you for coming. Thank you for living and dying and rising and ascending. Thank you for inviting us to come to you. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. May we experience you and experience that rest this season. Dispose us to such a pursuit. We pray in your name.